Well, hello and welcome to the debut episode of the Sport Business Finance Weekly Podcast, where we'll be examining each week the biggest stories developing across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of finance and deal making. I am your co-host, Eric Fisher, Sport Business U.S. Editor, and I'll be joined each week by my partner in this exciting new venture, Chris Russo, Chief Executive of Fifth Generation Sports. Chris is one of the leading voices of the sports industry with prior stops at Hulahan Loki, Fantasy Sports Ventures, and the National Football League. And I'm so pleased this is at last becoming a reality. We've been working on this project for a long time, and here we now are. Chris, it's really great to be with you here. Thank you, Eric. Great to be with you. It's launch day and uh, excited to get moving on it. Absolutely. So this debut episode of Sports Sport Business Finance Weekly will have a special interview later in the episode with Scott O'Neill, Chief Executive of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, and one of the true visionaries of our business. But let's get going uh, at the beginning here with uh, some of the news of the week. And that kind of starts with the SPAC craze here. Uh, we're coming up on four weeks or into the uh, new year here. And the SPAC craze that was hot and heavy in the latter half of last year so- shows not only no signs of abating, but accelerating here. The uh, the numbers that I've seen is not even through the first month of 2021, we're at $25 billion in money raised through SPAC IPO, special purpose acquisition companies. That's 30% of all of last year. And last year was by far record. And again, even through the first, not even through this first month of 2021, the SPAC money numbers, that's more than any other year besides 2020. A lot of major executives in our industry are being part of this. And I guess the the first big question on this is with all this money out there, are they all going to be able to find deals? Is, is there Are there homes for all this money that's being raised? You know, Eric, that is the question du jour uh, that I hear almost every day. And I, I think the answer actually depends upon how you define sports or your target area. If sports is really narrowly defined, let's say sports content, sports media, then I think it's difficult. But if you look at sports in terms of content, media, events, esports, fantasy sports, sports betting, uh, equipment, uh, fitness, uh, then that's a pretty wide universe. So I think to some degree it depends on on how wide that definition is. And I think the second piece would would be, you know, will the pro sports teams ultimately get into the SPAC, SPAC mix? Because that could add a, a lot of other assets to uh, to the opportunity list. Yeah, and to your initial point, I think the the net even gets cast wider when you think about some of the executives in the sports industry that are raising money through these SPAC vehicles for things outside of sports. And I'm thinking about somebody like John Ledecky, the uh, co-owner of the National Hockey League's New York Islanders. He's got a several different SPACs out there, many of which have nothing to do with sports whatsoever. And he just closed on a deal in the pet care industry, essentially using his, his, in part, his contacts and his track record in sports to help attract investor interests, but then going off in these other directions. Yeah, I think you see different strategies. I think in a, in a lot of cases, we've seen sports be part of something even broader, sports, entertainment, media, TMT, so I do think a lot of the SPACs are giving themselves a broad purview of the kinds of deals that they could do to give themselves that flexibility and that opportunity. So you you also mentioned the, the league piece of this. And, and 
all the leagues, the major U.S. pro sports leagues, they're 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 all taking a hard look in one form or another of their ownership rules and and what kind of capital they want to bring in, particularly given the continued escalation in franchise values. It looks like the NBA is already getting to this point where they're going to allow these vehicles to come in in a minority fashion. But as this continues to define itself, where do you see some of the the key guardrails going up? What are, what are some of the key attributes that the commissioners and the senior team owners are really looking out for here? Yeah, well, look, I think as you say, uh, Eric, one of the one of the goals is really to continue to drive valuations and to continue to bring new buyers into the mix where some of these teams have gotten so expensive that it's hard to find a high net worth person that has enough money or enough of those to create some bidding dynamics. So on the one hand, I think there's interest in having more capital and more bidding for the teams, whether it's LP stakes or complete ownership. On the other hand, there are concerns about disclosure requirements, regulatory concerns, governance concerns that have in the past kept most of these teams from being publicly traded. So I think that debate will continue, but there seems to be more momentum, at least to allow uh, institutional investors into the leagues than there has been in, in recent years. The disclosure piece, that's really interesting because 20 years ago, I remember writing on things like the Dodgers being publicly owned. And there was you know all this sort of hand-wringing that particularly as they were getting towards labor, baseball was getting towards labor negotiating cycles, having a lot of this kind of information out into the public domain and how that was going to impact the, the cadence of the labor negotiations. The Atlanta Braves are publicly owned, and we know a lot of their numbers, and the world hasn't hasn't seemed to spin off its axis. It seems like some of these concerns that we remember from you know ten, twenty years ago, maybe not as present. Yeah, I think. Look, I think times are changing in many respects. As we said, the, the you know the notion of institutional investors buying LP stakes, the SPAC world in general. Even though there aren't teams being SPAC, many of the SPAC, sorry, many of the team owners, as you mentioned, are owning SPACs or getting involved in SPACs. So there is a familiarity with the concept, a comfort level. So again, it's one of those things that we ought to watch closely and, and certainly could be on the horizon. Yeah, and I, and I think the one of the things that sort of jumps out to me is sort of the thematic similarity with the premise of a team ownership and the premise of a stat, a SPAC or a lot of these SPACs that you know, the team ownership, it's almost really sort of the gateway to media and real estate and using the team brand to get into all of these other areas besides just staging games and playing play, paying players. You read through a lot of the prospectuses for these SPACs, it reads very much the same way that they want to sort of get into sports and entertainment writ large and do this in this very broad, holistic way. Yeah, I, th- I think that has been a trend for the last several years where team owners wanted to create an entire spectrum of businesses surrounding the team. And maybe in the past, they funded that with their own capital or in partnership with private equity. And now there's an opportunity to do that with the SPAC world. So let's shift gears here a little bit. Uh, we we had a couple of really interesting pieces of news in the daily fantasy realm this week, and this is obviously a business uh, you know real near and dear to your heart and your own track record. Bally's uh, took on uh, and announced an acquisition for Monkey Knife Fight. This is the number three player in the daily fantasy realm behind DraftKings and FanDuel for ninety million dollars. And Caesars, just literally within hours uh, of the Bally's announcement, they Caesars came out with their own announcement 
that they're taking on a equity interest in Superdraft, another daily fantasy company with a pathway to control here. And it, and it seems like the playbook's pretty clear here that uh, these daily fantasy companies that can operate in 30, 40 states, it's a bit of a Trojan horse model to get customer acquisition and data in advance of a broader rollout of gambling. Is that how you see this? Yeah, that's certainly a, a part of the strategy and kind of big picture. I think everybody saw how well FanDuel and DraftKings got out of the gate in the betting space in part because they had that daily fantasy product and that daily fantasy customer base. Now it appears that others are getting on the bandwagon and trying to leverage the same opportunities in terms of not only the audience, but having a broad, broader suite of products that a sports better can play within the context of that uh, of that operator. So how, how do you see, particularly as gambling uh, continue and the legal sports betting continues to mature, how do you see the uh, the daily fantasy market evolving parallel to that? It seems like for a while there, it was very much a Coke and Pepsi kind of thing between FanDuel and DraftKings. But it seems like even with this gambling gambling continuing to grow that these other companies have been able to forge their niche and there's room for more than two players here. Uh, yeah, I, I think there certainly is room for more than two players or three players or four players. I think Daily Fantasy will still be a much smaller piece of the puzzle versus overall sports betting, but it wouldn't surprise me if other operators included a Daily Fantasy product segment to, again, round out the series of offerings. It's so competitive, Eric. There's more than 20 uh, betting operators in the U.S. competing for market share. And so each one is trying to differentiate. Each one is trying to provide the best service and products. So I do think you could see more daily fantasy products emerging, although, again, they will not drive the bulk of the revenue, but they will be part of the overall marketing mix. So how much do you see that sort of in the long term sort of evolving where daily fantasy really does sort of just exist as its own thing? It almost seems like depending on some of these companies, it's almost a bit of a, just for now, a gambling light or a training wheels, uh, sports betting or something that's just like, you're only going to want to spend some time here. It's really only on the pathway to this other thing. I mean, can can daily fantasy really be its own long-term thing? Well, I think there are certainly going to be that segment of the audience that loves daily fantasy and will continue to play it. I think that number of players that will be smaller than the sports betters. And I think that number of players will be smaller than the number of people who play a, a season-long fantasy without cash, but play against their friends or their college buddies or their workmates. So I, I do think it's part of the mix. It may be the smaller part of that overall mix, but as you say, it is now closely tied to that funnel for sports betting. Well, and the interesting thing is, at least for the foreseeable future and probably maybe forever, we're going to have separate sponsorship categories where we're seeing the leagues and teams do separate deals for sports betting rights and for daily fantasy rights. And we just had another daily fantasy team deal the other day where the Charlotte Hornets of the NBA signed on DraftKings as their official daily fantasy partner. Now, that one we've been expecting for a while because uh, the t owner of the Hornets, Michael Jordan, was brought on with, uh, by DraftKings as a special advisor to the board last fall. So that's kind of a natural there. But the, the point being is that the sponsorship act activity continues to be segmented. Yeah, I, I think that, look, teams are very good and leagues and slicing and dicing rights and maximizing them in the sponsorship area, in the media area and others. I would say in the, in the betting space, the, the betting operators are to some degree used to having multiple sponsors be involved with the property. There are a lot of teams that have signed 
two and three party deals over the last several weeks and months. So I think in this particular space, the notion of having multiple sponsors or partners or parties is something that uh, the operators seem to be willing to accept. There certainly are some exclusive deals, but there are also a lot of other deals where there's non-exclusivity. Yeah, and I think that's another one where the NBA was was particularly influential on, on that path that not only was Adam Silver out front years ago on the whole legalized sports betting front, but once the Supreme Court ruling came down in 2018 and they were able to start doing deals in this space, uh, they carved out straight away this pathway of doing non-exclusives and having a whole bunch of folks under the tent and every other league is sensibly followed suit. Yeah, I, the leagues have tended to focus more on non-exclusivity. Some of the big media companies have tended to do exclusive deals or quasi-exclusive deals, and the teams are somewhere in the middle. Some of the teams have done exclusive deals, and some of the teams have done multi-party deals. So we're still early in this evolution, but that's that's the way it's kind of shaken out so far. Yeah, and, and to your point, you know, a lot of these I think were in many instances in a three to five year time frame. So as we get towards twenty two and twenty three, early twenty four, a lot of this stuff's going to be coming up for renewal, and and the world's going to look pretty different by that point. Yeah, it certainly will, and hopefully it looks even better as betting continues to grow. So shifting gears here again, uh, you know, we're obviously here on the podcast here, and and podcasting in and of itself has been squarely in the news with a whole lot of deal making going on uh, just this week we had uh tegna this is the uh, old gannett spinoff uh big television station owner here in the united states they announced a deal to buy locked on podcast this is a very large and growing podcast network that was started by the radio voice of the utah jazz and this is just another continuation of a series of deals that we've seen in recent months that had a pretty prominent podcasting component. Spotify obviously took on the ringer last year. Penn National has got a pathway to control for Barstool Sports with Barstool's podcast network, obviously an important part of this. And all the legacy media companies are getting into this in in a pretty big way as well here. How do you see this market evolving, Chris? Well, look, it's been a great growth market. And I think in terms of sports, There were not a lot of big independent networks. David Locke created one. He started it several years ago. He was ahead of the curve. And for David, this this ended up being obviously a nice nice outcome. I think what's great about podcasting is the advertising is very immersive and and, and performs well and I think is, is liked by advertisers. I think you can localize podcasting the way David did by having podcasts for individual teams. And I think in many ways with sports, uh, podcasting will be a good uh, complement to what's going on in sports betting and sports betting advertising. So there are a lot of reasons why this medium really makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, and it seems like the the stickiness for a lot of this content, it seems to be performing in a way that a lot of other forms of digital media are not and have not. Yeah, well, I think that's part of, partly because the type of advertising you know, it's it's host reads a lot of times, so it's really the, the the advertising is integrated into the content. The person leading the podcast may be an influencer, so that person may have more sway over the audience in terms of some of the products that are advertised. So I think in general, it, it's it's a nice medium. It's a targeted medium, but it's also gotten to be a big medium so that brands, advertisers, partners can can reach a large audience. So you did a deal in this space in, in, in your your prior role. How would you sort of compare the market when you did that deal versus what you're seeing now? Yeah, I'd say the market has continued to stay pretty hot over the past couple of years. And 
in, in podcasting. I think, you know, Spotify made some early buys, which I, I think woke uh, a lot of people up to the market. And then since then, obviously, Entercom uh, bought Cadence 13. Amazon is reportedly making a, a purchase here of Wondery. And so there are other deals that followed, including the sports ones you mentioned, the Ringer, Barstool, yeah. Uh, and, and others and David Locke now. So again, I think it's continued to grow. We'll see how many more deals get done, but it's certainly been a good couple of years. So we're going to shift gears here on the other side of the break here. We're going to have our featured interview with Scott O'Neill from Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. And we'll come back to you on the flip side of that to wrap things up. We've now come to our featured interview segment on the Sport Business Finance Weekly podcast, and we are very pleased to have one of the foremost leaders in the sports industry, Scott O'Neill, Chief Executive of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, here on the program. In this role, leading the day-to-day operations for the holding group of the NBA's Philadelphia 76ers and NHL's New Jersey Devils, in addition to a minor league hockey team, two esports organizations, and part of the sports and entertainment agency Elevate Sports Ventures, O'Neill for many years now has been at the forefront of the industry and where it's headed. Whether it be jersey ads, selling primary and secondary ticket inventory in a unified marketplace, forging tighter bonds between traditional sports and competitive gaming, leveraging sponsorship opportunities in the emerging U.S. sports betting market, and now most recently helping forge the market for any ads, O'Neill is helping write the playbook for where the rest of the industry is going. During a long and decorated career that has also included stops at Madison Square Garden Sports, the NBA, and individual pro teams such as the Philadelphia Eagles and then New Jersey Nets, O'Neill has also established himself as a prominent voice promoting racial and gender equality, not only in his own workplaces, but society at large. Just in the last year, Harris Blitzer has developed several initiatives to fight systemic racism, including the development of a new buyback partnership uh, program aimed at supporting black-owned businesses. So thanks again, Scott, for being here. And uh, how's the year started for you? Well, Eric, first off, thanks for having me. Um, secondly, I think everybody's having a tough go right now, and I don't I don't think I'm any different. Um, I, you know, I, I have the privilege and pleasure of being in this business for 25 years. And, and the, the privilege and pleasure of that is that a lot of my friends are running organizations around the world. And we're all dealing with a lot. It's, it's a heavy time. Most of us are, are on it, if you will. By it, I mean the business. And I'm, I'm very excited about the business bouncing back. But, but this last 12 months has been a grind. It's been a grind on on people and mental health. It's been a grind on the business. I think we're all losing way too much money. And it's, and it's really tested us. It's tested our how innovative we can be. It's tested our opportunity. It's tested our, our management teams. And I think what 2021 is about for a lot of us is bouncing back and being opportunistic as deals come our way and making sure that our, our people, our cultures are are together and that we are kind of living our values and our commitments to be one of the greatest places in the world to work. And so, so we have our hands full as, as leaders in this business. Uh, there is no place I'd rather be than right here, right now. And I think um, in a business that, that is really high on execution and typically low on strategy, I think that's, that's been flipped on its head. 
So let's put that here and now into some historical context. As you correctly indicate, you, you've you been around the block uh, more than a few times here, and you were with David Stern in the NBA during 9-11. You were had a front row seat for a global economic collapse and what that did in the sports industry, plenty of other crises. crises. Um, how would you sort of compare the, sort of the here and now and trying to do business in the live entertainment business when you really can't have anybody come through the doors? Yes. I mean, I, I think you, you, you definitely hit uh, quite a point uh, between 9-11 and the financial collapse in 2008. Um, I think this is all of that combined with a, with a, a global pandemic and, and social and racial unrest and uncertainty and a, and a president that struggled to connect with people on many levels. So I think it's the worst of all worlds and the worst of all times. And it's times like these where you go back to, to basic core principles. It's like, who do you want to be as an organization? What structure can I set up in my organization? How do I care for the mental health and well-being of my team? How do we get our business back on its feet? You know, how do we handle some of the, the liquidity or financial challenges that might come your way? Um, how do you deal with uncertainty? How do you, you know, what does your five-year plan look like? I mean, it's, all these things were coming at us fast and furiously, but, you know, it, it comes back to the core principles. You know, you, you have an organization with really talented people. You make sure that the culture is first and foremost at the forefront. You create a structure that, that provides for decision-making. And you, you hope on a, win, a wing and a prayer that you spent your entire career making sure that the organization was fit and ready for change. And, and that's one thing that I've been extremely proud of with Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, the group at the Philadelphia 76ers, the group at the Devils and the Prudential Center, is this group knows how to pivot and turn on a dime. I mean, when I walked into this organization in 2012, you know, it was a, it was a mom and pop shop. You know, we, we didn't have a training center. You know, we didn't have the New Jersey Devils. We didn't have an esports franchise. We didn't have a top 20 venue in the world. We didn't have an investment platform for, for venture. And so, you know, as we look forward now, this group is, has been, they've, they've, they've been through the, the washing machine, so to speak. You know, they understand change. They understand integration. They understand kind of ripping up business plans and starting over. And so, you know, we had, we had a, a little bit of an advantage there because we, we are an organization that, that thrives, for, thrives on and looks for change. Scott, Chris Russo here. I know you had your hands full, as did uh, everyone in the sports industry dealing with the day-to-day and the pandemic. But throughout this time, have you had time to think about what's next? What's the next big play for Harris Blitzer? What areas do you want to focus on as you think about growth going forward? Or has that all been put in the, uh, on the back burner? Why, well, Chris, uh, good to talk to you. Um, and a great question. I, I um, you know, I think that there is more opportunity in sports and entertainment than there has been in the last 20 years, maybe combined. I think some of the challenges that we've faced have just opened up opportunity. So no, so yes, we are um, doubling down on our core business and we spend a lot of time making sure that the, the golden goose is, is safe and well and happy. And you know, we have our renewal rates of our season ticket holders for the Sixers are at 99% and the Devils are at 98%. I mean, I, I honestly, like our, we actually sold new sponsorship deals, almost $10 million across the platforms, which I couldn't believe. So, 
the core business is going to be safe, but we have to spend time there and make sure that happens. But it was pretty widely publicized that we we looked at a, a baseball team and there's they're playing and we looked at a, a an enormous real estate development in Philadelphia. Uh, neither came to fruition, but it does give you a sense of the size, scope, scale, and eyes and aptitude and attitude of Josh Harris and David Blitzer. And they have made a career of looking for opportunities. And it's a, a lesson that I've certainly embraced. It does take me back to my time in Madison Square Garden. Eric you know, asked a question about the financial collapse there. And I, I remember specifically being in a meeting and Hank Ratner was the CEO at the time. And I was the president of the sports group um, overseeing the Knicks and Rangers and the you know, college basketball, tennis and boxing, and et cetera. And we were about to put a, over a billion dollars into the arena and we had, and we just spun off and become a separately traded public company. So it was a really exciting time. And 08, you know, the crash is, is happening in there. And, you know, we, we came together as a management team and me with my, my horses that were there. And it was an incredible management team that I had. And, and we said, hey, look, we have a choice here, right? We can, we can sit, um, curl up in a ball and cower in the corner. Or we can go out and swing away in the greatest city in the world with the world's most famous arena. That's having uh, more than just a little facelift. It's a total transformation. And, and we can go out and sell and hit the pavement. And we did. And, and the deals speak for themselves. I mean, we did some of the, the, one of the, largest, some of the largest deals in the world. And while, while I'd love to pat myself on the back and take credit, the team was incredible. But more so the team, it was kind of the, 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 kind of the attitude and the opportunity to go out and swing away when everybody else was sleeping. Yeah. No, and, I, and speaking of the team, I know that at Harris Blitzer, you brought in a head of investments last year to look at the venture side, uh, the accelerator, some of the emerging businesses. As you think of some smaller companies that you might get involved with, are there specific areas like betting or this emerging collectibles area, or e obviously you're already involved in esports? Are there particular areas that are, are of special interest to you guys as you think about early stage companies and, and tech companies that, that are interesting to you? Yeah, of course. You know, uh, David Abrams is the, the the executive you mentioned. is a a, a good friend, uh, longtime Apollo executive, but I've known him for over a decade or so. And went to school with David Blitzer at Penn, so a lot of connections between Josh and Apollo and Blitzer from Penn and and me, um, just kind of circulating through the business. So he's a a wonderful, strong, smart executive who has um, some really exciting opportunities in store for HBSE. But in terms of small you know, this is a big business. I mean, you've seen the the valuation of the Sixers is, I think, up five times since I've been here in the last seven years. Devils have all but doubled in the last five year, uh, five or six years. And so you, you have uh, kind of dramatic growth in terms of the value of the organization. So for us to move the needle, um, while small businesses are exciting, we, we, you know, we have an innovation lab for early stage and we have a venture, a venture fund for, uh, for a Series A type rounds. So we, we, we cover those in our funds. And, and so that's where we would invest, take um, LP stakes in those companies. But in terms of we're really, at least from, from David Abrams and I, would be looking at, at bigger deals that are more transformational. You know, we've, we've looked into real estate quite a bit. Um, there's, there's several good opportunities. I think real estate, if you will, is, is kind of the new RSN, go back 20 years or so. So, so we've, we've definitely spent some time in that space. And then in, in terms of, of some of the spaces you mentioned, we, we have we have poked around in all and, and made some investments in some, um, but all on the LP side. 
This is Eric here again. Uh, you, throughout your career, you've been a big employee culture guy and and really uh, testified to how that sort of makes all these other opportunities you're talking about happen. Uh, what's it been like to try to keep that and not only just that employee culture maintained, but actually growing in the midst of this pandemic when, you know, this is a business that, again, relies on emotion and human touch point, And we're all disconnected from one each other physically. Uh, what's that been like over the last year to try to keep that culture going? You know, I'm really fortunate. I mean, uh, it's either dumb, blind luck or, um, or, I'm, or I'm good at attracting talent. But, you know, when you have seasoned executives like Hugh Weber, Chris Heck, both have won, you know, have run franchises before, emerging talent like Jake Reynolds, who I think is going to be you know, the, the great leader of the next generation. Donna Daniels, who I worked with for 20 years, she's, you know, been at the NBA for 20 years or so, and I've worked with in the past. I mean, we, ha- we have just horse after horse after horse here. So, so from our perspective, you know, when it comes to, to my role, you know, I, I'm the CEO, but this organization um, owns and decides what the culture is. And it's definitely a, a next woman up type mentality where it's, it's the next person in, the next person we hire. She is as, as, more, as, as important or more important in driving what, what we, how we want to work and, and how we go about our business and what the culture looks like than, than certainly than I am. And so it is an organization that's focused on being the best place to work in the world. And when that's your bar, why you oftentimes come short of that, it's a fun and exciting pursuit. It is not easy and it's been quite challenging to try to figure out how we connect. We just connect differently. Um, I can tell you that I know a lot more about the pets with, with the team I work with. And I've seen a, a couple um, of young teenager boys run across in their underwear um, in a couple <laughs> of our meetings. And I've seen little kids uh, where nannies called out. Or in, in one case, I was on the phone with a, with a young man who works for us, Chris Gennaro, who's a credible executive. You know, his wife is, I believe, a nurse. And so he's in charge of daycare. And so, you know, you know seeing and him showing me like his, his little setup. And so it, it's been an incredible opportunity to, to, to get kind of a, a peek behind the curtain, if you will, and get to know people differently. We still spend quite a bit of time on leadership development and development planning. We have our, our kind of regular leadership opportunities. My, my uh, you know, Monday and Wednesday, 9 a.m. meetings with my directs are, are my favorite meeting um, in the world. And, and the reason it is, is because we start the night before we get a, a challenge we get a challenge or an exercise to complete and, and it rotates through the group and we're each responsible for one out of every 10. And so you're, you're getting pressed and in, in, into everything from what's your favorite sports moment to what you're grateful for to tell me three things that will transform our business. And it's those types of things that then are filtered through the organization. So we have connectivity. Uh, we've also had some good success. I mean, it, in, in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion, I know that's a, that's a hot topic now. I tell several of my friends who are scrambling to catch up, I tell them good luck because it's a five-year transition process, or at least has been for me in the last three places I've worked. It it takes effort and time, but I I walked into an organization where we had 70% 70 of our our people were were white men. I used to say when I started, we have great diversity. We have old white men and young white men. And you you fast forward now, we had one woman, a VP or up. You fast forward now, our chief operating officer, Laura Price, our general manager, Donna Daniels, our chief marketing officers, Jillian Frechette and uh, Brittany Boyd, 
our chief revenue officer, Katie O'Reilly, Elizabeth Berman's our chief um, human resources. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. You know, we have 30% of the 76ers staff is African-American. So you go from uh, and white men are no longer the majority at, at HBSE. And, and, and that never happens by accident. And, and the reason we do it is not because it's, uh, it's, it's PC and, and good to talk about or fun to talk about. We do it because we believe it's a sustainable competitive advantage. And, and I, I'm, I'm really proud of this organization. And, and so to, to, to be at the forefront before this became a, a good headline in the media, I'm really proud. I'm proud of who we are and where we're going. I, I mentioned at the, the outset the um, efforts that you've made around fighting systemic racism. And, and last summer, the NBA came out and they, were, uh, they created the NBA Foundation and each team was kicking in $10 million to support that effort. You then went out and doubled that and did an additional thing on behalf of Harris Blitzer. So now $20 million through a variety of programs. What It's early days here yet, and I would imagine this is a multi-year effort as well, but what, what, what kind of progress have you seen so far on this front? Oh, man, it's so inspiring. You know, you, there are things we have to do in this, this job that are a lot of work. Like going to games isn't one of them. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be one of those, one of the fortunate few that gets to go to hockey and NBA games, which is just amazing. Working on DNI initiatives and, and trying to make the world better than, you, than we found it is not one of them either. It, it, it gets me out of bed in the morning and it's exciting. Uh, we hired this incredible head of DNI, David Gould. And we have these great programs. I mean, we're, we're investing in real estate and communities in need. We just announced a Buy Black program where we have these incredible sponsorship opportunities for Black-owned businesses. We have a vendor program. We have, we, 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 it, the list goes on and on and on, but it, it really starts, it starts with our commitment internally to make sure that we have an environment that's, that's really inclusive. And by the way, it's hard, but it's worth it. I'm very excited about this year and to see the kind of impact we might have. Scott, moving from the uh, the team and the organization level to the broader league level and, and broader ecosystem, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last several weeks about institutional investors being able to invest in in the NBA and minority stakes, LP stakes, and and it looks like that will be coming to fruition in some form or fashion. How do you think that will impact not only valuations but but the culture of the league? Is that something you're looking forward to to have new kinds of capital partners in the league or is it something to be concerned about how what, what's your kind of view on that i mean first off who wouldn't want to invest in the nba or the nhl right now i mean i know a lot of talk about the nba but but similar opportunity exists in the national hockey league nba the numbers are astonishing i mean I, I mentioned early on but you know i remember i when i came into this league in 1992 i think the jazz sold for 13 million dollars and a good friend of mine, Ryan Smith, just bought the Jazz. I believe it reported one point six six billion dollars. So, so that's that's a return that I think we can all get comfortable with as as investors. And so, I I'm thrilled to have more more investors into this space. Institutional investors generally um, seem to be that they will be be passive. They'll certainly support additional growing valuations going forward, which I think is fantastic. And, uh, and and no surprise, the NBA is leading the way as they do in most issues. Absolutely. And so maybe taking that one step further with the craze that's gone on in terms of SPACs over the last several months, do you, do you see there will be a day where the NBA or the NHL uh, allows SPACs to acquire a team? Do you see that happening anytime in the future? I wouldn't bet against it. I mean, uh, you know, we have, I haven't worked for Madison Square Garden 
We were a public company. Probably remember the the Boston Celtics were public um, before the current group acquired them. Manchester United is a public company. So I so I I would not bet against that. I think you know there are a lot of hurdles and um and, and it's you know between Sarbanes Oxley etc. It is administratively painful, but I think as a as a a way to find liquidity and a way to truly value these sports franchises, um, the public markets might be an interesting opportunity. So then as we look ahead through in 2021 starts to define its own shape here, what are the trends that you're looking at that are really going to define this year as we move forward? You know, I think you're going to see, you know, a lot more focus on just making sure the bounce back happens with the core business. And I know that's not the most sexy or interesting thing to talk about by any means, but from, from those of us in the trenches, we're going to have to spend time there. I think gambling will, will continue to make its, take its meteoric run and rise. Um, you'll see some of the SPACs that were announced. I think there were 20 some odd sports SPACs announced. And I think you'll see some some large investments there. I think that's a really interesting story to watch. I think the the melting ice cube that is the RSN is probably the most interesting story and in how leagues and teams embrace and engage in, in D2C and, and learn how to become real marketers for maybe the first time in our in our histories. And I, you know, I think Generally, we've got to get our BD hats on and go out there and kick some tires. You mentioned the core business. How are you feeling about the prospect of fans in attendance again? And, and so much of this business is about butts and seats. How are you feeling about that prospect becoming a reality, say, come the springtime? I think spring might be a little premature. I mean, you'll have some. I, mean, I think we have six NBA teams and six or so NHL teams taking on fans now and in some of the markets. So I, I think you'll you'll see some fans come in, you know, 1,500, 3,000 or so in the spring. But for us, you know, we're really, really, you know, hopefully that the distribution of the vaccine, and we, we just heard yesterday, you know, J&J will have 100 million vaccines out by mid-March. You know, we just heard the Biden administration is looking to, to acquire another 200 million Vaccines, so I'm 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 hoping that the glacier pace of the start of the distribution of the vaccine will pick up, because once once that happens and we start to get some herd immunity, then it's just a matter of of, of getting the the local governments to give us the nod. We're very fortunate, uh, really strong relationships in the the city and state of Pennsylvania and the city and state in uh, New Jersey, and I I think everybody's working hard for the same thing. But it's it's time that that we are that we we kind of get on with this. I'm, I'm, I'm itching to get my vax, I will, I will say. I think a lot of people feel the same way. And I, I certainly don't want to jump the line of anybody. I think everybody feels the same way. But, you know, you can imagine an environment in May where, you know, the playoffs start to kick off and we've got 60, 70% uh, of the market vaccinated. And we have a little um, checkoff system that if you're vaxxed, you can come in and we fill these stands and, and, uh, and we're right back in business. And so I'm, I'm excited. Um, if, if it has to drag through the summer, that's okay. We've got an incredible concert venue here that, that'll be ready to go. Um, I, I can tell you that if you, if you study back what happened in, in, uh, after the last big plague, what happened was the Roaring Twenties. And I, I fully expect the Roaring Twenties to be our Roaring Twenties. Um, I'm, I'm, I tell you what, like I said, I'm one of the very few who gets to go to these games. And I, and I look up in the stands and see 12 people. And, um, and it's not enough. But for me, the escapism, the sense of being part of something, the sense of community, like everything that's right about sports and everything we need 
bring our mental health back into focus, we have, and it's, it's, it's in the, in the shape and size of a sporting event and a, and a, and a, and a big concert or a family show. I mean, we, we need this and we need it now. And so I'm, I, I couldn't be any more bullish on what's going to, what's going to happen. And I cannot wait to be in an arena filled with fans. Well, as we look to wrap up here, maybe you can uh, just give us a, a little bit of a plug here for your, the book that you've written during uh, COVID time here, Be Where Your Feet Are, and, and the uh, the insights that you're looking to bring out there. Well, thanks for the shout out. So you can buy it uh, right now, pre-sale. Now I'm just, I mean, you can actually, but it comes out June 1st, St. Martin's Press Essentials line. And it was an incredible journey for me. Like it, I'm not, it's not natural for me. But it is a book about life's principles and learning and getting, I guess, now if there's ever a time where we all needed to, to reflect back and learn from the great leaders that I've had the privilege to have access to, from David Stern to Adam Silver to Knight Shyamalan to all these incredible people who have taught me so much. Um, I hope I, I shared a few of those lessons. And I think it's a really interesting read if you're in and around the sports business and even if you're not. So come in June 1st to a bookstore near you. <laughs> Great. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being here. There was a lot more that we could certainly get into, but uh, obviously you're a busy guy here. And, uh, you know, we all just can't wait to be back at the arena and, uh, you know, seeing the puck drop and the, the ball get tipped again here. Hey, as soon as it opens up, we'd love to have you. You'd be my guest. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate you. Well, we want to thank Scott O'Neill from Harris Blitzer for being part of our debut episode of the Sport Business Finance Weekly podcast. Uh, that was a great discussion, don't you think? Hey, absolutely. It was great to get Scott's perspective on a lot of those issues. So as we look ahead to next week, uh, Super Bowl is uh, quickly approaching on February 7th. Uh, what are you looking ahead to out in the space? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see where the Super Bowl ratings fall, especially in a year with a pandemic and, and no Super Bowl parties. I think everybody will be looking at that. But I think some other things I'll be watching is what is going to be the sports betting handle on Super Bowl this year, given all of the excitement and growth in sports betting? Uh, and then I think finally, this is going to be kind of a different year in terms of Super Bowl commercials. Obviously, some of the usual suspects will not be advertising. There'll be other brands. There'll be other, I'm, I'm sure, kinds of activities. So it'll be interesting to see how all that shakes out as well. Yeah, and I've been paying pretty close attention to the ticket market after the conference championship games, and we got the uh, – Chiefs uh, Buccaneers matchup locked in. Prices went absolutely through the stratosphere to levels that we've never seen. Average listing prices of $16,000 and up, get ins over $10,000. The market uh, in the last few days has softened as supply has gone up. You know, the average is more now around $12,000 and the get ins around seven. But these numbers are all way above anything that we've seen for any prior Super Bowl, even with some of the short selling that we saw back in 2015. So as we get Get to this second week of the Super Bowl fortnight. It's going to be interesting to see. We've seen a, a various trends over the years where there's been a continual sag as we head up to the game. And then last year, thanks in part to On Location, the official NFL hospitality provider that's owned by Endeavor, they've really got a, a, a pretty strong foothold on the market. And they've really smoothed out some of the market gyrations that we've seen in prior years. And uh, the market really held last year. And so seeing this kind of up and down this year, in part because of the uh, attendance restrictions at Raymond James Stadium, it's it's been interesting to see. Yeah, it'll be, as you say, the last five, six days can sometimes have a big impact on the market. But these are 
uh, two interesting and, and uh, talented quarterbacks and and two great teams. So hopefully uh, it works out well for everybody, especially for the folks, uh, the uh, first line workers that have been invited there as well. Yeah, so that's going to be uh, 7,500 of the about 22,000 that'll be at Raymond James Stadium for the game. But that'll wrap things up for the debut episode of the Sport Business Finance Weekly Podcast. I'm Eric Fisher with my co-host, Chris Russo. Uh, We'll be back to you next week. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be for financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you again next week. 